Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Confessions of a Dealmaker podcast. I'm your host, Jason Godwin. Dealmaking is a profession upon itself, the world's highest paying profession. Things don't just fall into place by accident. A good dealmaker understands that it's their job to finesse things into place. When I was looking for a quote for today's episode on the subject of dealmaking and what kills deals, I couldn't find the source of this quote, but I know I'd heard it before. When we knew we were going to talk about this topic, I knew exactly who I wanted to have on as my guest. This person has helped close countless business transactions and is one of the foremost experts in the state, I believe, on business transactions. Today's guest is Justin Munizzi. So Justin is a graduate from Stetson University with a bachelor's in business administration. He graduated from Barry University with his law degree. Justin is the founder and managing partner of the Munizzi Law Firm. The Munizzi Law Firm specializes in business law, residential and commercial real estate transactions title, and then also M&A. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jason. I'm excited to be here today. Excited to have you too. So when we knew this was a topic we wanted to talk about, which is what kills deals, I couldn't think of a better person to have on. You you and I have been in the trenches on dozens of deals together over the years, and uh, I couldn't think of a better person who can can share their wisdom on how to keep a deal together. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because M&A is, is a different animal than real estate transactions. Um, you have to, it's a longer life cycle, first off. You know, residential transaction, you might be living with the seller or the buyer for 30, 45 days. A business deal, you may be living with them for six, eight months, maybe more. And so uh, you really have to get along with people. And things can uh, sometimes go sideways when parties have the wrong motive or they have different expectations. And so we have lots and lots of stories, as, as you're aware, <laughs> some that we've shared. Do you remember how we met? I do. You want me to share it? Well, I I would love to hear from your perspective. I actually went through my old inbox trying to find the original series of emails and um, I couldn't, I could not find them, but yeah, I'd love to hear from your perspective or how we met. Yeah. So I think I, I I think we, um, so we merged emails in 2019 or um, I should say we changed domains. And so I think I lost the emails from that time period as well, but it'd be fun to see them. I think um, the way we met was that my father had a commercial investment property here in town and, um, uh, at the time, you had a Matco Tool franchise, and mm-hmm. so the commercial property had a tenant. The tenant basically paid his first and last month's rent, got up and running, and after a few months, skipped town, disappeared. Yep. Uh, he left behind a bunch of stuff, but he also took a bunch of stuff with him. And so we needed to actually terminate his possession so that they could relet the property. So we filed an eviction suit, and you reached out to me because you had the Matco Tool franchise saying, hey, look, I've... I, uh, you know, rented some tools to this gentleman and can I get in there and see if he left anything behind? And I remember thinking, you know, this is probably an adverse party. I don't know if we should be talking to him, but all right, fine. You know, it sounds (laughs) sounds like he's sincere. You know, he's just trying to get his tools back. Okay, fine. And uh, I think we had a a few conversations. I think you were able to get in there. And at that point, he had already taken all the tools with him. Yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah. I think what happened is, so they had, they were there for maybe a few months. They should, they closed down shop very quickly and I remember, I think I went to the property appraiser site and then went to uh, SunBiz to figure out who the registered agent was. And I found your firm and I think I called your office yeah. and like, it was like, I, you know, and you were like, why are you calling? And then we, but through that, we built a great relationship because we've, we've been able to work together in, in, in so many different transactions yeah. now. And it's been a great, not only business relationship, but a great friendship. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it's a funny beginning. Um, but yeah, I was, I was glad to have met you. Um, and it's, it was also a lesson for me that I've 
tried to implement throughout the years and, you know, just treat everybody with respect, treat everybody fairly. Uh, it's amazing how far that will take you. Right. I mean, in business in general, I've learned that too, is to give people the benefit of doubt because you never know what relationship you might make that in the front end, you may not think, oh, well, how, you know, how is this going to be beneficial to me or the parties that I help? But then you, all of a sudden in the future, you realize, oh, wow, this person can help and, and or they're just a great relationship to have. So I try to now have an open mind when I'm meeting people because you never know. I mean, there's so many meetings I've taken. I'm like, wow, this just doesn't seem like this would be a, a good use of my time. But then all of a sudden, like, oh, no, this is a gr- this is a, a great partner referral per, uh, referral partner to have or person to know that I can send them clients they can send me clients or I can help serve their clients vice versa and it's like I'm always surprised how that works yeah yeah I'm reminded of a quote and it's certainly not mine but business development has more to do with farming than hunting and I don't know who said that <laughs> but it's I think it's true you know it, hunting is you go out and it's a one-to-one ratio you kill something you bring it home you eat it farming you're planting seeds and you don't know which ones are going to sprout and which ones are going to die and so we're planting seeds all day long, all week long, all year long with the business development. And you're meeting people that, you know, there may not be any relationship that comes uh, to bear from that, but sometimes it pops up and it becomes a great relationship later on down the road. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and and I would say in your industry specifically, it's very relationship focused. You're, you know, you're a part of the BBF and you're one of the, um, I would say, number one attorneys in the BBF now that, that people are looking to for business transaction, advice, closing, support, title work, um, because you've been able to get the job done and you've been able to get deals that on the front end didn't look like they were going to be able to close and get them to close. And, and that's not by accident, right? That's by, and, and I'll, I'll speak to your abilities and your team's abilities. That's because of the way that you manage transactions. And so, um, uh, for anyone that's wanting to grow a business, start a business, or take a business to the next level, if if you can just do what you say you're going to do and exceed people's expectations, your business will grow on its own, right? So that that's the, along with the farming aspect and building relationships, you'll be able to have a great reputation that precedes you and people will seek you out for your services, right? And so um, you become one of the foremost attorneys in your field because you're so good at what you do and getting deals across the closing table, right? Because you've got the experience and also, there's there's kind of a sense of, uh, I think, an instinct you have to have in, in being a, a deal maker to know how to help parties communicate better and to understand each other and then also to figure out what each other's needs are so that you can get those deals at the closing table. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's two things, and, and by no means do I think I'm, uh, you know, the expert in this field, and I appreciate you saying that. I, I think there's a lot to learn, and maybe that's something that I do well is that I'm always willing to learn. And I do try to do that from every transaction. So I, at the end, we, we sit together as a team and we say, okay, what went well? What are the things we can improve on? What can we do better next time? And I always look for something, you know, whatever it may be, however small it is, there's always something we can do to improve. Um, but as far as the relationships and the, the sellers or the buyers themselves, a lot, a lot of what we do goes beyond just the technical, tactical services of being an attorney. Sometimes it comes down to just being a good counselor and what right. that may look like with a seller, for instance, is saying, hey, have you thought about why you're selling? <laughs> Such a basic question. And, and, you know, you do a great job of, of prepping your sellers and making sure they know the why. Um, some brokers maybe don't take it that far and, and don't necessarily do as much of that. Um, but getting a seller to really understand why am I selling, you know? Uh, is it just for the money? Is it because I want less stress? What is, the, what is it really? Um, you have to peel back the onion a little bit. And so good communication, getting them to see themselves, 
um, from a different perspective, see the transaction from a different perspective can be helpful. You know, I never really asked you this since probably, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to going into this conversation so that we can say, you know, have this to talk about now. What is it like from your perspective, prepping a seller to go to market and what conversations are you having outside of just the why and, and what are some of their fears, concerns, or the things that come up that they're, that that's keeping them up at night when they're going to market? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, right off the bat, you know, I think it's the fear of rejection, <laughs> um, especially if it's somebody who started small and has grown uh, versus somebody who bought an existing business. So if it's somebody who's poured their blood, sweat, and tears into the business over the years, they've got a lot of ego and emotion attached to that. Understandably so. Um, and I can relate. You know, I started my business small as well. And so they have to be able to see things objectively and also not be afraid to put themselves out there. And so going to market is kind of a bit, a bit of self-revelation. You're revealing yourself to the world and saying, okay, here's, here's what I've got, for better or for worse. And um, so getting over that, I guess, initial fear of rejection. Um, another one is, you know, and this is more of a legal concern, is scaring off your employees when they find out that you're selling. And so, and that can be overcome in various different ways, confidentiality agreements, um, you know, the way that you market to buyers, obviously getting a buyer, a buyer to sign an NDA prior to revealing anything. Um, but that's another fear is like, hey, if my team finds out we're selling, you know, are they all going to run? So that's just a few things that come to mind. Yeah, no, we've had some of the same conversations, but the one I haven't given much thought to is the, the putting themselves out there and the fear of rejection. Yeah. That's good insight. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, and again, that's like, that's beyond uh, what a, an attorney is really trained to do or think about. Um, it's more psychological than anything. Right, relationship-based. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what I've noticed in this business, which is not how I thought it was going to be coming into this, and I think that's also why people who come from a real estate background somewhat struggle in this industry, is it's so relationship-focused. Absolutely. It, which I think that's why we've done a good job if we've taken that approach, but uh, when you when you've had experience in real estate transactions, which are somewhat, I wouldn't say adversarial or contract negotiations where you're, you know, it's, you're trying to get something from the person and you're trying to win. Um, you, you may never meet them. You may never have to look them face to face, right? And right. in a business transaction, you have to trust the person. You have to build a relationship because you're buying something you can't see. I always say if we're, if we're buying a piece of real estate, I can, I can hire a business or a, a building inspector to go look at the building and tell me the condition of the building. We can hire an environmental company to do a phase one, phase two. I can hire an attorney in the title service to do all the deed investigation, title work I need to do to, to give me a good understanding of the property. I can review the financials and, and get lease estoppels, and I can know I can make a decision without ever leaving my office. But with a business transaction, that's not the case because you're you're buying a living, breathing thing that you really can't physically see. You're You're looking at... Um, a series of processes, people, technology, and information that produces revenue, that provides a service that produces revenue. And you have to investigate how that per performs and build a relationship with the seller to understand if it's something you trust. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a great point. You know, it, it is so different than, than real estate transactions. <clears throat> like you said, real estate transactions, you can touch it, you can see it, you can quantify it, uh, you can dissect it uh, through inspector's reports and title work and all that stuff. And in a sense, you're basically, it's less personal because a buyer and a seller can both sit there and look at the property and focus on this other thing that may or may not have issues, right? When you're selling a business, it's so much more personal. Right. If there's a defect in the business that the buyer finds or some issue that they don't like, a seller is going to, or, or may very often take that personally. 
Because mm-hmm. what they're really saying is, hey, you didn't do a good job with running this business. You, know, you did something wrong. And so that's a totally different sort of conversation. Right. And then also when you're negotiating for an asset, you know, there's a, it's a quantifiable thing you can physically see. And there's usually a known price. You can, there's data you can use to quantify your objection to the asking price or yeah. your support of your asking price if you're the seller. So you can negotiate a position based on information and data. In a business transaction, it's more personal. So you really don't have that high ground to stand from, whether it's, you know, a previous sold price or, um, you know, your support of your asking price. Um, so it's not the same negotiations. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people take that for granted going into a sale. And so they get themselves in a position where they're going to be adversarial in a, in a way. It's like if you're going to go uh, – when you're meeting your wife for the first time and you're trying to date her and you want to understand who she is, you can't be adversarial and try to pin her in a corner <laughs> with words or with contract language. Like, all right, well, so if you know you don't do this, then you, this is what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. It doesn't work. Very true. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. Business closings are very, very relational. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, one of the things that I like is when the parties do spend some time together before they even think about doing a letter of intent or an, or an offer and get to know each other. Um, because they got to know the process. They got to know what the business looks like. They, they need to know how the seller has been thinking, you know, all these years that they've been running the business and, and make sure that their, their thoughts are aligned and that their expectations are the same. Right. Yeah, no, I've seen the number one thing I've said, I've, I've seen that leads to success in business transactions, um, is two parties that get along, two parties that, that, understand each other or at least they're attempting to understand each other and they're being objective about the business and having open conversations and dialogue whenever there's a lack of openness in the relationship it tends uh, issues tend to show up at the very end of the deal when you're the closest to closing and all of a sudden now trust may be broken it's harder to it's harder to uh, bridge that gap and get the deal across the finish line. Absolutely. Yeah. If I had to pick one thing that I think is the biggest, the biggest predictor of whether a deal will, will fail or succeed, it's going to be the trust. Uh, do the parties trust each other? Are, are they thinking the best about each other or are they expecting the worst? If the, th- if the seller believes that the buyer is out to get them and they're looking for every advantage, um, whether it's actual, you know, evidence to support that or whether it's just perceived, if they don't trust the buyer, it's it's going to be like rolling a, a rock uphill the entire time. Yep. We and we, as you and I have experienced yep. in the in the recent past, um, and the same goes for on the buy side. If the buyer has some uh, distrust from the seller, if they think the seller is withholding information, they're not being transparent, they're not communicating clearly. Um, and sometimes sellers don't communicate clearly because they may not have the language to communicate clearly, or that they don't have access to the data the buyer's re- requesting, or um, they maybe didn't keep those records that accurately for that topic that they're looking to review, and they think the seller's being invasive, and it's just it's just simply that it, it's just poor communication. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I won't do my, uh, my industry any favors by saying this, but I will say sometimes when there's multiple attorneys involved, <laughs> <laughs> it can get really messy. And the reason why is because you're now having multiple different conversations, but also types of conversations. And so you're going to have this. An interest, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're going to have this formal legal conversation going on between the attorneys and then the buyer and the seller are maybe having their own conversation. And then you may have the agents. If there's a listing agent and a selling agent as well, they may be having a conversation. So you could have up to three different conversations between six parties plus others maybe 
going on and it just really can muddy the waters. So, um, <laughs> as much as I, uh, I do obviously think that parties are entitled to representation and many times they, the both sides need it. Um, if the attorneys are not doing a good job of keeping the parties together and, and facilitating good communication, it can go sideways when they start posturing. Right. And then you'll have a, and, and in my experience, it's been sometimes a, a third party and outside parties, attorneys that come in that they all of a sudden start posturing out of nowhere and, and pounding their fist on the table saying, oh, this right. is the way that the language, this language has to be in the agreement. This has to happen this way. Yep. And, you know, I don't want to kind of jump ahead too far, but um, knowing that that may come and being prepared for it will help alleviate the tensions when that situation comes, right? Because it, the more, like you said, the more attorneys on the deal, the more the the immediary and the actual closing attorney need to be aware that there will probably uh, a problem will probably arise, and you have to have a plan for how you're going to handle it. And you have to start asking questions early on so that you can prepare for that as soon as possible. For sure, absolutely. Uh, we had a deal. I remember that the most complex one we had was a gas station liquor store um, transaction. So we had in that deal we had a closing attorney. We had the individual parties' attorneys. We had a title agent because the seller refused to use the closing agent for title. Okay. We had a fuel supplier that had first route of refusal on the property and had his attorney involved. Oh there was a attorney for the liquor license. The lender had their own attorney involved. <laughs> and there was another one that popped up for another reason. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I think I had to do something with the lender, too. So the lender may have had two attorneys involved. And we were literally negotiating at the closing table still. We were in the closing, we we're at the closing table post-inventory, and there were still things that were being negotiated on a conference call with all the parties involved because it, there was just so much ambiguity because there were so many interests in that deal. Let me ask you a question. Did those attorneys, however many of them were, how many, six, seven? Something like that. Did they ever meet face-to-face? No. Well, the so the um, the closing attorney was the well. No, that was at the closing table. So no, no one ever met face to face besides the broker and I and the and the buyer seller. Yeah, yeah, and and so, in in these days, you know, Zoom would even be fine. Um, but I, I think that again, the attorneys were, were trained sometimes even to do the opposite of what's conducive to making a deal work. You know, to try to find the faults, to think the worst, to try to find what the other party's hiding, and so. When you have that many attorneys, it can get very complicated if they're all just sending emails back and forth or talking over each other. So I, I like it when things start going that way. Just say, well, let's have a timeout. Let's all sit together, whether it's Zoom or in person. Let's look at each other, you know what I mean? And, and so that we can see each other face-to-face and work through these issues and try to come up with a plan because we're all on the same team, really. We're all trying to get the same thing done. If you can see it that way, you can start being creative and cooperative instead of adversarial. Right. No, that's fantastic. I don't think enough parties take that avenue and it's also it's funny you say that so think about this this was a pre-covid deal and now that i think about it i don't think we were using zoom as much then and now it's it's i would say most of our meetings are held through zoom so one thing we do is we we try to get the parties on a meeting as soon as possible once once the, the buyers express interest we have a buyer seller meeting via zoom and it's easier to facilitate than in a person meeting and, and start building the relationship before yeah. we go to in person, especially if you have a lot of buyers who are looking at a deal. But we try to often, I haven't thought about it that we weren't doing this intentionally, but I've noticed that keeping the parties engaged via Zoom once every two weeks, once a week, those relationships seem to uh, 
uh, produce easier closings. Yeah. No, th and that's huge. I, I don't think uh, enough brokers do that. And <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of that saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. In business deals, the opposite is true. Right. Absence makes the hearts grow colder. And suspicious. <laughs> and suspicious, yeah. And yeah. so if you can keep them, if you can force them to keep looking at each other. I mean, we had a transaction not too long ago where this was the case. Um, Still have nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> and without going into too much detail, these parties, uh, when they were face-to-face, -face, they loved each other. And they got along, and they, they hashed things out, and they would walk away with a pretty good understanding. And then a few days would go by, a week would go by, two weeks would go by, and then they're starting to think the worst of each other again. Right. And they would just drift apart. And so, yeah, if you can keep them in front of each other, it forces them to face their issues. Right. Yeah. And so that's a good expectation to have. And, and a good thing to... to let sellers know before they go to market that hey, this is a relationship-based transaction. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to build a relationship with this buyer for the buyer to trust you, and the and you're gonna have to trust the buyer that they're gonna have the best intentions in mind with the deal. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's that's good advice. Absolutely. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the transaction process from from your perspective. I I think a lot of people th that may create a lot of anxiety for sellers because they don't know what to expect. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's a <clears throat> there's a couple different buckets, if you will, or pass if you if you prefer that of how we can approach a deal. So I'll give you an example. So a seller might come to us without a broker, and they may say, "I'm thinking about selling my business. What do I do next?" And so in that situation, if they're not already working with a with an advisor or a broker, I might encourage them to do that. Um, I, I will usually will do that if they don't have a prospective buyer yet, right? Because they don't know what they don't know, and they may think their business is worth. Uh, $100,000 and it's actually worth 50 or maybe it's worth 300. You know what I mean? And so we'll encourage them to talk, talk to a broker right away. But um, if they've already got a seller or a, excuse me, if they've already got a buyer identified, then we will talk about, okay, what have you discussed so far? You know, do you have a term sheet, a letter of intent, something in mind, um, just bulleting out the deal. If they don't have that, we'll assist them with building that. And we try to get them on the same page with just the fundamentals of the deal. And so in that situation, we might be representing one of the parties and doing the closing work. So we're wearing really two hats. We're representing a party. We're being the closing attorney as well. Um, the buyer, or in the case that we're representing the buyer, the seller might get their own attorney. Um, so there could be another party involved there. But that's one path. The other path is when we are approached by parties who have already reached an agreement. And they could be represented by brokers like yourself, or they may not have brokers, but they've already got the deal pretty much ironed out, and they're just looking for us to close it. So that... In that case, our, our deal is kind of more cut and dried. We're just wearing the closing attorney hat. You know what I mean? And so we're taking orders from them. We're drafting the closing documents. We're letting the contract speak to us on what the parties have agreed on. And then we're memorializing that with the closing docs. So it can go a different, a few different routes. Yeah, and sometimes there's a blending of the two depending yeah. on it, what could happen. So I think here's a good question. Oftentimes I have, and this is more of a buyer-specific thing, we'll get to a place where a buyer wants to make an offer and we, and we say, okay, great. So we're going to draft this agreement. We need to figure out this, this, and this, who's going to be escrow agent. Okay. Who's going to be the closing attorney? Well, what do you mean closing attorney? Why can't we use the title office? And we'll, okay, put the brakes on, right? Yep. Why would you tell a buyer or a seller they should use a closing attorney to close a transaction versus using their individual attorneys to, to play tennis with a uh, closing packet or having a title company do a business closing? That's a great question. Yeah. And that's, I've seen that before too. So the first thing is the title company is not legally allowed to do a business closing if there's not real estate involved. 
Uh, if there is real estate involved, they can do the, the real estate portion of the deal, but typically they're not going to be able to handle the, the business sale documents. So we're talking about the bill of sale, um, the conveying instruments, any of the sort of reps and warranties that go with the business as, uh, assets. So they can't touch that. They can only do the real estate. And the reason for that is because they are agents for their underwriter. Underwriter only issues title insurance, and so they can do the documents incidental to issuing title insurance, but they can't do anything else. So right off the bat, if somebody's saying, well, I'll, I'll use my title company, you have to sort of dispel them of that notion, explain to them why the title company legally won't be able to do that. Um, the second thing about why don't the buyer and seller just each get their attorney and then sort of uh, bat it back and forth, um, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Having a closing attorney involved, their job is to close the deal. And especially if they're, so they're not representing either party, um, that means they're representing the transaction. And so their job is pretty clear there to get the, the, the deal to the finish line. And so they have sort of a vested interest in keeping things on track and moving the parties closer and closer to closing. Exactly. That's a great answer. Um, additionally with that, uh, there's a lot of confusion around in a business sale, what is actually being conveyed? You know, a lot of times sellers are very confused on what are you, what are we actually providing to the buyer and what's the buyer giving to us and, and what needs to happen to, to convey those assets and items. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a great question, too. Something to, to be addressed early on. Um, if it's a situation where one party is thinking, oh, I'm getting the equity, and the, other, and the other party thinks, oh, no, I'm just selling the assets, obviously that has to be addressed pretty early on, right? So um, those are the two routes, really. You can do what's known as a stock sale or a membership interest sale if it's an LLC, where they're actually buying the equity of the company. They're stepping into the shoes of the owner of the company. Um, so that comes with everything that the business has. That means that they're going to be acquiring the liabilities of the company, the assets of the company, professional licenses that go with the company, and there may be compelling reasons why you might want to do that. To give you an example, I've got a, a current deal right now where there are some professional licenses involved and they belong to the business, and for the individual buyers to go out and get those licenses, it would take them years. And so they're, instead of doing an asset sale, they're just going to do a stock sale where they're stepping into the shoes of the owner. So that comes with various pros and cons. The other alternative is what's the majority done the majority of the time, which is an asset sale. So the own, the company is the seller, and the company is selling the things that it owns to this new person. And this new person may have their own entity that they're going to acquire it in, or they may just be individuals. So those are the two routes you can you can go, and it's important to drill that down early on. Why? Which one we're going to go with? Yeah, we've had that conversation in the beginning of the process, listing process, and sometimes parties are confused as who the seller is. And it's like, well, you as the individual are not the seller. You're the authorized representative of the company. And you're signing on behalf of the company. And, and you, we have to have a corporate meeting minute that records that you are being granted permission to sell the company. That's right. Because the company is actually the, who the seller is. And yeah. there's sometimes some, some uh, misunderstanding of, of how, what is actually being sold. Yeah, and, and as a person or a practical matter, I always make sure to have a CPA. If they don't have a CPA already, I already try to I try to get them connected with a good CPA who's familiar with business acquisitions and who can advise them on the tax implications and the financial implications on which path they pick. Right, because they can be drastically different depending on which direction you go for different situations. That's right. Absolutely. So in your experience, you know, we talked a little bit about relationships and, and what is best practices to help get a deal to closing. What do you see that gets deals off track? Mm. <laughs> so just a few things that come to mind. I mean, the seller not actually being ready to let go, the seller being too emotionally attached, wanting the buyer to do things their way. Um, you know, a, a buyer may or may not like the seller's style of doing things. They may want, just want the assets. 
and they may have an existing business in that same industry and they're just going to bolt on the assets. So if a seller is really, really stuck on, you got to do it my way and here's why I'm, I've been successful for the past X number of years and you know you need to do it my way or the highway, um, that can throw a wrench in things. Uh, unrealistic expectations on lending and so and qualifi- qualifying for a loan um, on the buyer's side. So if it's an SBA deal, as we know, that might take some, some more time to get it done. Um, and if a seller thinks they're going to close within 30 days, <laughs> they need to have a little bit of a reality check and they need to be, to realize that it might take a little bit longer and they need to either, they need to come to terms with that. They need to say, that's not, that's not okay with me. And I want a different type of buyer. I want a cash buyer, or they need to settle in and be patient and realize it's going to be a process. Yeah. So one of the new things, so we're rolling something out new in our process is kind of an, in our onboarding form is in our questionnaire is basically there's five options and it's what's most important to you in this transaction. And, it, and those questions are based on time frame, And so that we can understand what the seller's expectations are. Is it you want to sell in less than 90 days? I think you and I have done one transaction that closed in less than 45 days. It was a cash transaction we did, I think, in the beginning of 2022 or into 2021. But that's the only one in my career that's closed in less than like 90 days. Yeah, yeah. It's typically not a, not a quick process. And right. the reason for that is pretty obvious. You know, the lender wants to make sure that they're comfortable with the deal as well. I think you said this, uh, and it's accurate. You know, lenders are, yes, they're qualifying the buyer. They want to make sure the buyer can meet the financial obligations, but they're actually also underwriting based on the company. Right. Like they're looking at the seller. They want to see that the seller was making enough money with the business, the assets, all that stuff to make it work. So they're doing underwriting, not just on the buyer, but also on the business itself. And that takes time. Right. When we bring a business to market, one of our practices, and I hope I'm not giving away too much of our trade secrets, but we are, we look at every deal through an SBA lens. Will this qualify for SBA lending? Um, I think a lot of times the, the parties, whether that's brokers, sellers, buyers, they wait until someone asks for SBA, like, oh, now let's get an SBA lender involved. Yeah. And now you're okay. That's, that's cost you three weeks to get through like pre-qualification. And then, you now have to underwrite the deal. You have to underwrite the buyer and, and you've lost 45 days before you know it versus doing that on the front end. Like, yeah. okay, we can get a higher price. If we go with an SBA buyer. It, that, that is until you get into the larger deal sizes, that seems to be the case. What I've seen is SBA produces higher exit prices. Yeah, absolutely. But it also produces high blood pressure, stress, anxiety, sleepless nights. And, uh, the more time you give underwriters to think, the more interesting questions they will come up with to ask out of nowhere. It's very true. I think they stay up late at night thinking of questions to ask yeah. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing in terms of things that can get a deal off track or kill a deal would be what I said earlier, attorneys with something to prove, uh, attorneys that feel that they have to, <laughs> attorneys that feel like they have to, to justify the retainer that they charge by finding problems and then trying to solve them. Um, and the attorneys that do this type of work, M&A work, generally speaking, they have a solutions-oriented approach. If they're good at what they do, you know, they're looking to, to make the deal work. They're looking for every reason to make the deal work. Now, obviously, they're not going to overlook problems. You know, they have a fiduciary duty. They have a duty to their client to make sure that if there is a legitimate concern or something needs to be addressed in the contract, that we do it. But if it's something that really doesn't have that big of an impact, I've seen attorneys, and, and I'm guilty of this too in the past, you know, you get hung up on a particular paragraph or sentence that you really want. <laughs> You just really want it because you wrote it. <laughs> and if you're not careful, you let your ego get in the way, and then you'll end up having – you'll spend a day arguing about something, and you're like, wait a minute. What impact does this actually have on the deal? It may not have any impact. Right. You know, So you have to put that stuff aside and say, what's best for the parties? What's going to get them where they want to go? Absolutely. One of the other things I've seen on the attorney side is um, not reading and responding to emails thoroughly, which – 
I can say working with you for so many years, one of the things that your office is amazing as communication, it's fast and thorough and detailed. And, and we know that whatever emails were sent, your team is reading and you're reading. So you have the full picture of what's going on. Whereas in, in other deals I've worked, um, it seems like the attorneys, a lot of times it's all outbound communication and they're not reading the inbound. So they're basically, basically acting on their information and they're not taking new information in. So sometimes there's timelines that may not be met or things that were overlooked because they just weren't reading the emails thoroughly or, or participating in the communication. It was very much one directional. Yeah. Um, I see that a lot on the lender side too. The lender's attorneys, you've, you, you have to kind of slow them down because what may, people may not know about the lending process is it's a giant machine and it's a conveyor belt and, and they're taking your deal and dropping it on the conveyor belt and, and it's going down their pathway and it's going to drop from one person's desk to the next, to the next, to the next. And you have to be prepared for that. When it gets to the to the attorney's desk, they're stressed, and they've got two weeks to get this thing closed, especially if it's near the end of a quarter, because that's big in the banking world is measuring things by quarters and bonuses and performance-based incentives. So they they have a very short timeline to work on that project, and they may not be privy to all the previous conversations or, or interactions, and they have what's in the notes and what needs to happen in the next two weeks. Absolutely. Yeah, to address your first point about the attorneys who may not be as responsive to emails, you know, I can sympathize with that. And it comes with, frankly, it, it comes with getting too overloaded and maybe not having the infrastructure to support right. the volume. And so I, I think we can all relate to that to a certain extent. You know, you, there's been times when we're just slammed and, you know, right. you don't give the things that, the attention that it deserves. But that should be the exception and not the rule. And um, another thing I would say is knowing when to use an email and when to pick up the phone is a big thing. That's a good one. Right. And so... I'm a big fan of like if you're if you're having two, three, four emails on a on a single issue, and the parties are just kind of talking past each other, that's when it's time to stop, put down the put down the keyboard, and pick up the phone, and just call. So look, let's figure this out, you know. And sometimes you can figure something out in a five minute phone call that would have otherwise taken you a day of, of back and forth emails. And especially when it's a tense issue, one thing I've noticed with me yeah. is if I'm trying to get things done quickly, I may send a short, curt response, not yep. because I'm trying to be, you know. Uh, direct, but I'm trying to be efficient. Right. And I want to make sure this gets covered and gets out. Whereas if I picked the phone up, it would have came across differently. Absolutely. So it may be left to assume what I meant by my words, or if I was communicating, especially when communicating what one person said to another person. So the right. seller wants me to respond to the buyer with this. The buyer wants me to respond to the seller with this. Yeah. It's very important sometimes to pick the phone up and say, hey, here's the conversation in its entirety I had with the buyer. How do you feel about that? What are your thoughts? What are your concerns? Versus like, direct bullet point email, I fire off, then move to the next task. This isn't a conveyor belt business we're in. I, I Well, in what I'm in as the broker, I, yeah. it's, it's very much relational, r- relational, personal, and having to understand what the parties are fearful about, how they feel about it, so you can get that deal to the closing table. 100%, yeah. Uh, one other thing I would say on the lending front is uh, – if you can avoid trying to make the lender the bad guy, that's a good thing too to, to try to avoid. Uh, so <laughs> what I mean by that is if like everybody starts ganging up on the lender, hey, you're screwing up the deal, you know, it's it's not good. You know, you don't want the lender to be adversarial with you. You want the lender to be cooperative. So you want to just keep them involved and let everybody know that they're on the same team too. I mean, they want to close deals. They want to write loans. They're in the business of writing loans. So I've made that mistake. I've had something to prove before and I, uh, I I was certain I was right, and I've went at it with lenders, attorneys before, and for for, for <laughs> to no benefit of my own, um, 
But I, and I've learned now just to, like you said, pick the phone up and call. Like, hey, can I ask you why, why are you asking for this? Yeah. How can we work around this? Because a lot of times what it is is they have a framework that they operate within. We need all of these things. Like we had a deal, maybe you remember a few years ago, <clears throat> transportation company. And the lender had given us a thumbs up two weeks before closing. They Their underwriting department said, hey, I'll stop. The tax transcripts do not match the returns. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. And the attorney, it was basically, oh, yeah, it's not going to work. Figure it out. So what ended up happening with that deal is what we didn't know, The uh, this is important to know, things that kill deals. The accountant, to be helpful, filed a placeholder return with all zeros hmm. so that they, were, they didn't have to file an extension, and then they amended the return by mail. So they e-filed the placeholder return to get, just get a return in. It didn't have all zeros, but it had enough information, but it wasn't accurate. Um, to buy them time to do the uh, amended return, so I don't know why, because you're still going to pay, I think you'd pay interest either way. But um, It that, made sense to the accountant. It made sense the to the accountant, <laughs> but the, what people don't realize is um, when you e-file, that gets transcribed immediately because it's e-file, but yeah. when the e-file window closes, you have to mail it in, it sits in a box for sometimes six months before they can actually add to the transcripts. Right. So they may have accepted your payment, they may have recorded, but it's not on the transcripts. Mm. It appears. Again, I'm not an accountant. This is just for entertainment purposes only and educational purposes. But um, yeah, that what we ended up having to do is get a CPA letter from the CPA stating, you know, hey, we have the receipt from when the client paid. We have the check stuff from when they paid their taxes. We have both copies and then a CPA letter saying that, yeah, this is actually what happened. And so it just took getting on the phone with all these parties to make that happen, and then that deal ended up closing. Yeah, yep, and that's what it takes sometimes is just getting people to, to see past the issues and see each other and work cooperatively. Right. For sure. Yep. What are some other things that you see become obstructions and deal killers or get deals off track outside of uh, buyers, sellers, and lenders? So we talked about unrealistic time expectations. You know, I think that's the other big one is uh, just – wanting the deal to close too fast or, or expecting it to go too slow, maybe even, uh, you know, sometimes you have big buyers that are, that are in the business of buying small companies and that's what they do. You know, it might be a private equity company and they approach a seller and they give them a letter of intent and the seller's like, well, this looks great, you know, and they don't read the fine print that they're looking <laughs> that, that offer that they're making is really not an offer at all. Cause there's so many outs for them, right? Mm-hmm. And there could be uh, the purchase price being paid via earnouts, so they're not getting a lump sum at closing. They're going to get it paid over time, and so if the seller is not reading that carefully, they may have a totally different idea of the deal that's happening. Then they might get under contract. A couple months go by, and then the buyer says, "Hey, you know what? We're going to back out." Now the seller just wasted several months, you know, and they they thought this deal was going to go through. They thought they were getting one thing, and turns out now they're not getting anything. So that goes back to making sure they have a good broker like yourself that can make sure they're vetting the offer. Well, one thing I've seen, too, is when a buyer, and buyers are not going to like what I'm about to say, when a buyer works with a seller directly without some type of intermediary in place, the buyer has all the time in the world and all the leverage in the world to make their decision. There's no um, mechanism to create competition, so they can drag a deal out for as long as they need to. There's several times we've had clients come to us and say, well, we have buyers coming to us. Why do we need your services? 
And I'll ask, okay, how long have you had these conversations and why haven't they taken you to the altar yet? Why don't you have a ring on your finger? Why isn't there a contract? Right. Because they've got all the time in the world to make a decision if they want you or not. And, and they have all the leverage. So that deal will drag on and on and on and on. If you don't have some type of intermediary to be the catalyst for momentum and competition to get the deal moving. Cause sometimes people have the best of intentions, but they're just used to um, taking as much time as they want. Right. Right. And, and that's a hundred percent true. And I've seen it happen with clients that we represent on the legal side, they get approached and um, they don't for whatever reason uh, involve us right away. And they just come to us later after they've already signed something with a, with buyer a letter of intent uh, they're saying, "Hey, we're going to sell," and I look at the, I look at the deal, and it's like, "Oh man, you know this this is probably not what you're thinking it is." And so, sure enough, we've had several where it falls apart after a few months. The sellers emotionally drained because they're they're getting their hopes up. You know, they're getting emotionally invested in this idea. Now they're starting to vi- envision themselves on an island drinking a umbrella drink, <laughs> you know, fantasizing about having this money in their pocket, and then it doesn't happen, and it's emotionally draining for them. And so that's usually when I say, "Hey, look." Sorry that happened. You know, let's talk about the future, though. Have you considered talking to a broker? And the reason why is so that you can prevent this from happening again, and, and make sure that the deals ac- or an offer is actually vetted and it's the right thing for you. Right, and and a broker working, you know, and in unison with their attorney as well, because right. we may, we are not able to advise them on the transaction side on the as far as the the contract language. We can tell them the basis of the offer and the financial side of the offer. Um, you know. I think expectations are very important, and that's why it's it's so valuable to have a conversation with an attorney, a broker, your accountant, a financial advisor on how much money you need for retirement. Because I think a lot of times sellers want to price their business on how much money they need, not what it's worth. Right. And one of my pet peeves with brokers is when a broker, and this is a rabbit trail, but I think it needs to be said because this kills deals. When a broker entertains a seller at a asking price that is not reasonable or achievable by any means, um, let's say, I mean, double what the expected asking price would be. Even if the seller does not sign that listing agreement, they've now have it in their head. That's what their business is worth. So now they go through growing and structuring their business in a way that this is what the exit I'm planning for because it's worth this much. And so they may go five, six, seven, ten years without properly preparing for what size exit they need. And then they try to go to market at that price or that multiple. And then they come to find out that, well, the business isn't selling mm-hmm. or the deal is not staying together. And it's because they had this unrealistic expectation and this target that's not achievable. So now they have set their whole retirement plan up based on that yeah. target. Yeah. And that, that could be particularly catastrophic, you know, if they're nearing retirement already, right. And they're, uh, they're really counting on that money. So yeah, I agree with you. That that could be a big problem if they have unre- unrealistic expectations about what the business is worth. So it really does well to take your time in setting that up before you go to market. And I've seen you do that. I've seen brokers maybe not do that so well. Um, but taking your time and making sure it's priced right, marketed right, so you're attracting the right buyers. That's everything. And even if the seller wants to go to market at above market price, you're being very clear in communicating. Um, and I had this... I had this conversation yesterday with a great client. He's got a great business. And the conversation, he had, he had, he's interviewing brokers. And what I told him was, I said, this asking price, I think it will take us a year to two years to get because it, it, it is a, it's a large margin above where I think the market will currently bear. Uh, and your business is fantastic. It's just, this industry doesn't pull that high of a multiple. And it's still, he's he's able to achieve a, a you know, four plus X multiple, 
but other brokers have told him numbers that you know are in in the tech space right so in the almost like these seven eight nine ten x which you know if you have a tech company i mean you can go buy uh you can go buy chevron for a eight to one price to earnings ratio right so an 8x multiple on chevron right now so knowing where your price expectation should be and knowing that okay we can still achieve this, but it's going to take a lot longer so that right. you know you're going to be on market for a year, two years to maybe get that number. And maybe you'll grow into that number. Um, one thing I have I have on here I want to talk about because it, it doesn't come up often. When it comes up, it creates a lot of obstacles is outside parties. Yeah. Um, may that be a, a barter relationship you have. Like I had a deal recently. I started talking to the seller and you know, as we're having this conversation, like, well, you know, yeah, I, I trade this for my landlord and he lets me rent here for that. And then, uh, you know, my my uncle is my landlord and I pay him like this much. And then my um, another supplier does this. So we barter for this and and how those now how those outside relationships are going to affect a transaction because they're probably not going to convey with the business. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And so that's something that our team would do, or I, I specifically will do as soon as I get involved in a transaction, let's say it's, it's still at LOI negotiation phase. Um, how does this business operate? You know, what, what makes it go? Um, what are the vendors you use? Who are your customers? What are those relationships look like? Where do you live? You know, what, where does the business live? Does it rent? Does it own? Uh, okay, let's let's take a look at the lease. Is it assignable? You know, do we need the landlord's consent? That's a big one we haven't talked about. Yeah, leases. It, is there an assignment fee? Um, is this uh, an institutional landlord? Is this a mom and pop landlord? Are they f- familiar with assignments? Are they going to take six months to consider it? Are they going to give it to us right away? That's a big thing right there. You know, because if the le- the lease is going to convey as part of the deal, then you need to know that you have the ability to do that. And same thing with. Uh, you know, vendor relationships or, or what, you know, anything like that, where there's maybe a bartering relationship. Is there a contract that memorializes that? Can we get a contract in place prior to closing that will convey with the deal? So all those things need to be nailed down. Um, the one sure and fast rule is if you do do nothing and do not nail those things down, it will be a problem at closing. Right. And le- leases, I think, is a whole podcast episode in itself. There's language that, so when you're reading a when as a broker when we read a lease we're looking we go straight to the assignment section that's the first thing we want to look at and no there's a there's a clause usually that says will not be reasonably refused i think unreasonably withheld yeah, yeah unreasonably withheld or if you want to get really pithy unreasonably withheld conditioned or delayed yes Us attorneys um, love those couplets and triplets when that is not present it will there the landlord can carte blanche not renew that or not assign that lease and and it's to their full discretion. They can renegotiate the rent. They can renegotiate cam. Um, We've seen that happen. And I think a lot of times when I tell all of our clients, if you're ever signing a lease, it doesn't matter if you're signing with a family member, you need to have an attorney look over it because they have the lens to look through that lease to, to know, okay, five years down the road, how is this going to affect the business? Yep. Yep. And I've seen it go both ways. So like I said, you know, if you've got a uh, a large landlord, maybe they've got multiple properties and, and shopping centers or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, they, they are used to doing assignments, right? And so they've got a process and, and I've seen it work very well. You know, you submit an assignment request. They say, okay, great. Let's see the financials for the buyer. Um, we'll have them execute a new personal guarantee and boom. And you sort of get a rubber stamp. Other times it's the opposite where the landlord's never done an assignment and maybe they have one property and it's a small family. And so they, they're like, whoa, assignment. What does that, what does that mean? We were leasing to you. We don't know this other person. And so, yeah, uh, 
everything boils down to what does the lease say? If the lease is silent, then, you know, there's a few ways of looking at that. You know, if it's silent on assignment, then potentially the, the, the tenant or the seller could go ahead and assign it upon notice. If it says that you have to get the landlord's permission, period, then it's going to be like what you said, where it's going to be very one-sided and we're at the landlord's mercy. And so we need to start that conversation early on with that landlord to make sure that we're going to be able to convey at closing. We've seen things in the past where you have leases that have ambiguities in them because dates may be wrong. They may be written and numerically different. We've seen that before. We've seen where the entity name may be wrong. And so then it comes into question, does the does the seller have right to the property, right? Or does the, the you know, w- what's enforceable? So it's good to have those items looked at ahead of time. And also, to, you, you mentioned something that brought up a, um, a past situation, knowing what the financial requirements of that lease will be. Because we had a, a deal we were trying to work, probably 2019, where the, the landlord wanted this huge personal financial statement from any tenant coming in. And so even though the lease was only three grand a month, they, they needed to have $250,000 cash in the bank to assign that lease. Mm. And that now made the uh, pool of buyers a lot smaller because additionally, yep. after closing, they had a post-closing liquidity of 250 k just to qualify for the lease. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. And to be honest with you, when I'm representing a landlord, we try to include as many of those clauses <laughs> as possible. And if the tenant's represented, we might have a conversation about that. But um, yeah, yeah, a landlord wants to make sure they have as much control as possible on the assignee. Uh, conversely, the tenant wants to make sure they're not in a situation where the landlord can just say, nah, we don't, we don't like the, per- the way that person looks, you know, we're gonna, we're not going to agree to the assignment. Um, there's a particularly problematic provision in a lease on assignments where it says that if the tenant attempts to assign or tells the landlord that they want to assign, the landlord at that point has the right to terminate the lease. And that could be a real big problem too, especially if the landlord and tenant don't get along because right. they will use the request to assign as the uh, impetus for getting rid of that tenant especially when you're looking at businesses like laundromats or restaurants that are very much leasehold improvement specific. There's yeah. large investments in that space. And so the business is that space, right? right. It's, it's a geographic location and, and those sellers need to protect themselves and, and make these provisions ahead of time and know, okay, this lease conveying is going to be the most important thing in the business transaction outside of even the financials. Um, and so knowing that ahead of time and, and speaking with an attorney, I always say you need to have a attorney number one, account number two, financial advisor number three in your corner if you own a business. And then and then a business broker when you're getting within I'd say five to ten years from retirement, at least have the conversation. Take them out to yeah. lunch, something. Yeah. Um, so you at least know what to expect. Yeah. I, I think the best time to to look at talking to a business broker is when you're not looking to sell, when you're still maybe years away from thinking about it. Right. Talk to a business broker and figure out what could my business sell for. And if I need a certain amount to live off of in retirement, then what do I need to do now to get me to that point so that I can go to market in three years and get it? Right. Right. I feel like we've done a good job covering most of the issues that come up. Is there anything you can think of we can add? I'm sure I'll think of something as soon as we're done today. Uh, there's just so many situations. I think it all boils down to good communication, good expectations, be reasonable, um, be ready. If you're the seller, know why you're selling. Be prepared to invest a lot in the personal relationship with the buyer. Uh, one thing we didn't touch on that I'll mention real quickly is in the majority, in fact, I think almost all of them, every single deal has some kind of post-closing obligation of the seller's principal to continue participating in the business. And that might be two weeks. It might be six months. It might be a year. 
depending on the nature of the business, the buyer may need the seller's principal, the person who's really been doing the work and making it happen to stay on and coach them how to do the, do the work. Mm-hmm. Well, if the seller and the buyer hate each other, <laughs> how is that going to look? You know right. what I mean? And, and so that's something to think about. Like if you, you really have to like this person, you have to be able to get along with them. Um, because in most situations, the seller's going to have to stay on after closing for at least some kind of coaching and training familiarization period. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, they got, they can't be at each other's throats. Right. And we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the buy side. So on the buy side, I think a lot of buyers do a good job with this, but getting pre-qualified before you start business shopping um, talking to an SBA lender, knowing what the financial requirements are going to be. There's oftentimes we'll have a buyer inquire on a business. And then we always ask for, we ask what their uh, cash position is available to invest in the company. And oftentimes um, they're a little short on what they need. And so we coach them on that and say, okay, so you want to get an SBA loan? Well, you need to talk to an SBA lender, but you know, roughly you need 10% of the transaction cost the equity injection available and, and you have to have some post liquidity. So if you only have $50,000, you can't invest $50,000 in the business. You need to have something left over after closing. Yeah. Um, because in case, in, in case you need money to live off of outside of just the business, in case there's a month or two, the business is down. Right. Sure. And, and, and lenders are looking for that. And also understanding that, um, most sellers are not going to finance at SBA terms. And I think some buyers, they come into, um, there's a, I see this online. There's so many uh, coaches, consultants that are teaching buyers how to buy businesses. And they're they're on the topic of um, how to buy a business with no money down, not using your own money, all this very grifty stuff that's not true. I mean, I've, I've yet to find a seller motivated enough to sell his business with no money down, yeah. finance it for a, from a, um, a buyer. I've yet to see that. If there was one, I would be concerned. Right. What? Yeah. What? What are they running away from? What liabilities are out there? Is there a pending lawsuit coming? Right. Yeah. So, um, understand that as a, from the buyer for the buyer, um, sellers are not going to typically give up their business for the same terms that an SBA lender is going to. And maybe some you might find a, a a seller who's that motivated to retire. But to your point, what's hiding? What's lurking in the right. shadows? You're not you're not seeing yet. Right. Right. Yeah. And you're talking about seller financing specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, seller financing is, is a great option when uh, there's a gap and it, we need to cover it, you know, where the third party lender can't get us all the way there. Um, sellers should be open to that idea, certainly. And, and if they're not already thinking about it, that's part of the education process to say, hey, you know, you might want to, might, it might come to a buyer who can make it work, but they're going to need a little bit of help on the seller financing. So be open to holding paper on that. Um, yeah. If, if a seller is really motivated to sell, um, there could be very good reasons for that. Um, there also could be some bad reasons, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so, if you're a buyer, you're right, you you need to nail that down. You need to understand what what is motivating the seller to sell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and one of the to the point on seller financing, one thing I'm seeing is um, with interest rates rising, it's becoming more crucial for sellers to participate in in the lending in some in some way. Some yep. that may just be a a small seller note, but it also maybe a small seller note on standby. Sure which means no payments can be received on principal during the time of the, why the loan is still has a balance with the lender. Yeah. Um, and understanding that as a seller, that if, when we start pushing into the higher range of the multiples, the amount of cash left to cover the debt, it shrinks. So there may need to be some participation from the seller to make that happen. Yeah. And sometimes a buyer doesn't actually even need the seller's 
cash, so to speak. They don't need to sell their note, but they'll still ask for it for indemnification purposes. Mm -hmm. So they'll want to sell their note for a small percentage of the deal so that they have some kind of recourse uh, if, if an issue does arise, a claim does arise, and right. they can set off their damages from that note or stop payments and have at least some kind of buffer there for their damages. Mm -hmm. So, again, buyer may just even say, hey, we want to sell our note just so you have some skin in the game post-closing. Right, which it shows the buyer that the seller believes in the business. When the seller's not sure. willing to participate post-closing, it sometimes raises some some uh, suspicions that there may be, you know, the business may fall apart after the sale. You're right, yeah, Absolutely. So, so to wrap up, we had some questions from previous uh, episodes. Some of our listeners wanted us to go over, and I, I've been saving these for, for this conversation because I thought you'd be the right person to, to ask these to. So uh, a friend of ours, Jason Javera, asked, how do you negotiate? <laughs> uh, in good faith. <laughs> it's a very lawyerly answer. Um, I, when you negotiate, I mean, you need to know what is a want versus what is a need you need to know what is a position versus an interest. And so what I mean by that is we all have these things that we say we want, but when you look at it, is it is it is it something you actually have to have or is it something that you just have been coached to say? Yeah. So, um, and again, a lot of variables here, right? You know, but if, if you're a party to a deal, you have an idea of what you should be negotiating for. And that's influenced by so many things, you know, books, TV, other professionals, podcasts that they're listening to. <laughs> And they have ideas about what they should be negotiating for. Um, but you need to be willing to be wrong. And you need to be willing to reconsider what you think is most important. And so somebody who's a, a really good at helping parties negotiate will be able to peel back the layers of the onion and look at, okay, here's what they're saying. Here's the position they're taking. But what is the underlying interest? Um, I had the benefit of doing mediation. I was a certified mediator for a number of years. And um, that's something mediators are trained on is when you have two parties who are adversarial and you're there trying to help them to see each other as humans, really, um, peel back the layers. You know, they're saying they want this, but what do they actually want? They may, they may say they want 5,000 bucks, but what they really want is vindication. They want an apology. So that's, that's in, within the context of a mediation, but that applies to business negotiations as well. Mm -hmm. Figure out what do they really want, what's motivating them, and let's get to that as quickly as possible. That's a great answer. Um, I'm a big fan of what Chris Voss talks about in his book, Never Split the Difference yeah. in Negotiating. He's the hostage negotiator. Right. Yeah. And it's almost like, well, I won't use that example, but um, it basically comes down to communication, understanding what the other party is most interested in mm. um, and then how that aligns with what you're interested in. So, or the other party, if you're, if you're an intermediary, you're, you're trying to, bridge the gap of communication so that the parties can get to both what they want and they both feel like they're getting a win. Um, if you feel like you're, if you, if you have to twist someone's arm, it's not like buying a car, right? You go to buy a car, you're, you're adversarial with the car dealer and you're, it's right. not a cooperative experience because right. you're not coming back typically. Yes. You're buying a car and you're leaving. Mm. Um, you can't take those type of positions in negotiating a business relationship. Um, it, it just doesn't work. I, so I think understanding the position the party's coming from and finding a way to get a win-win, but still getting without giving up what you want. Right. And then you may also find out that what you want may never align with what they want. So is that is there a time to walk away? And, and um, I think is it I can't remember if it's a Mark Cuban or Warren Buffett quote, but the the best deals in business are sometimes the ones you walk away from, mm. or best investments in business are the ones you walk away from. Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. 
know, and yeah, I, I think everything you've said is accurate and, uh, yeah, I hope that hopefully that answers Jason's question and, um, every negotiation is a little different, but yeah, if you can see what are the parties most interested in and try to get to that as quick as possible, then you're going to save everybody some time. Right. Uh, Jason, another question, how to close, how to close someone on a deal, how to get actually, Mm. Well, I'm going to point to you for that because, to, to be <laughs> honest with you, my job usually is not to persuade. Um, right. You know, it, it, it's maybe to reveal facts or truth or, or things that are the person's not thinking about. But I don't typically try to close anybody on a deal, you know, um, because that's just not the hat we wear. Um, I, I would be interested to see what you have to say about that. The, the simple answer is a party has an interest in something that you have, which is why they've came, they've come to you, whether that's if you're trying to sell them a, a physical thing, if you're trying to sell them your services. So the, what I've always looked for first is what is, again, what is their motivation? Why are they interested in this? And then I'm looking for all the reasons they would say no, and I'm asking myself if, if I can provide those answers. So, for example, if someone has an objection on price, is it an objection or is it a complaint? Mm. Do they really have a, a limited budget or they just they don't want to pay that much for the, for the service or the product? Um, what's their underlying motive, right? So what's the most important thing to them? And then we're going to keep discussing that and moving towards that. You know, yeah. like um, Jordan Belford talks about the straight line method. So you're, you're asking questions to get enough information to get through an objection and you're asking for the close. And then when they give the objection, you're going, you're now addressing the objection. You have to, when you're being ethical, you have to, you have to address it objectively. Okay. Is this, is this a objection or a complaint? Mm -hmm. Because if you're transparent, you'd say, well, address it like it's, it's a complaint, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, this business may be more expensive, but does this business stand out from all the ones you're looking at? Yes or no? Okay. Yeah. If no, well then, okay, maybe this isn't the right business for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, you know, same thing with services. Okay. Is this, I always ask clients, how important is this to you? You know, if they ask us about it, they're talking about a fee, right? And how much do we charge? Okay. Let me ask you a question. You get to do this once. How important is this for you? If it's not that important, then don't do it. Then find someone else. But if it's important to you, it should be something you're willing to invest in. So it's speaking to the objections and speaking to their concerns and addressing them ethically and honestly. And they may not be a fit. You may not be able to close them. But I think um, that's, at least for me in my life in sales, what's produced the best results. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And, um, yeah, as I think about it, I I do a similar thing when I'm representing a party and we're doing the closing or maybe we're just representing the party. And um, I, I like that methodology of trying to identify whether it's an objection or a complaint. Um, sometimes somebody just wants to, to vent and they just need to be heard. And so we'll, we'll play that role. You know, we'll, we'll listen to them and hear them out. Okay. I hear your complaint. You know, let's, let's talk about that though. And for instance, in a situation we had where a seller was sort of griping about the fact that the buyer's lender, uh, was taking too long and we had to do a few addendums to extend, they were just really getting upset. And, and I said, okay, well, let's think about this for a second. You know, does the deal that you signed two months ago, is that still the deal you want? And um, do you like this buyer? Do you think they're the right fit? And if this deal blows up today and you had to go back to market and you had to get another buyer under contract and you had to get to where this deal is right now, how long would that take, right? And so the answer is it would take another six months. And so you have a 30-day extension addendum versus going six months with a new unknown quantity. Obviously, the 30-day extension addendum makes sense, right? 
And so that was a situation where we had to identify, okay, this person just really needs to vent and to get this off their chest and we'll help them with that. But then let's figure out what is the actual issue. Is it just a complaint or is there an actual objection to the deal? Yeah. And then to summarize, I guess, all closing is, is, is asking questions, making observations, and then repeating that information back to the party and, and asking the right questions and, and asking for the call to action. Okay. Can we move forward? Well said. I think that's the, that's the one thing I see people who struggle in sales. Um, their one hang up is, is the confidence to ask for the call to action, to ask for the close. Cause they'll, they'll, go through all the steps of following up and communicating well and asking you questions and then they'll wait. They'll wait for someone to, to they may be shy or they may be fearful of rejection because in sales you're going to get a ton of rejection. But they, they're not asking for the close. I think that's the biggest thing. Just ask. Very well said. Yeah. So uh, next question, our friend Aaron Preston asked, if a business owner has terrible books and financials, can they sell their company and if so, how? <laughs> well... I'm going to have to look at you for this one. I, I think, uh, and this may come as a shock to some people, but uh, I don't love accounting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have to be familiar with accounting just to the na- because of the nature of what we do. But I, I personally uh, don't love accounting and don't love reading financial reports. But that said, I think in, in broad terms, if a business owner has terrible books of financials, they may still be able to sell their company. It just may not be for what they want and when they want. They may have some homework to do before they can get to that point. Um, it may change who, who their potential buyers are too. Uh, and this is kind of a takeaway from like real, real estate, you know, residential real estate, for instance, you know, uh, a home that can't qualify for traditional lending may not be an issue to a cash buyer. You know, a cash buyer may say, yeah, this, this has some issues, right? Maybe there's a, uh, an ingress egress issue. There's some problem with the property, but I'm a cash buyer. I know how to fix it. I'm okay with it. Right. And so I think the same applies here. It, it may just really narrow down your potential buyer pool of buyers, but it depends on the situation entirely. You know, it could be a situation where it's like, well, we need to take a timeout. You need to spend the next 12 to 16 months and clean up things on the financial reports mm-hmm. so that you can actually go to market in good faith and really uh, be prepared to answer questions by a buyer. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I could say that better. The only thing I'll, I'll add is um, there's two things that play in a business transaction. There's the price and the time on market. Um, those are controlled by how many qualified buyers fit your business. So if there's more a more competition for your business, you can demand a higher price. Mm-hmm. If there's more competition for the business, you'll have a shorter time on market. When you start reducing the amount of qualified buyers or interested buyers, you're now decreasing the price and time on market. So when you have poor quality of earnings, you're reducing the amount of buyers who are willing to look at the business. So now you're reducing the price and increasing the time on market. Right, right, yep. And that's where it just comes down to having an honest conversation with that seller and figuring out, First of all, are you even aware of the problem? <laughs> Maybe that's an issue you have to overcome right in the beginning is, is helping them to actually see that they do have an issue. Right. They may think no, nothing's wrong with their business. Hey, this is the way we've done it for 20 years. You know, we, we write out our um, financial statements on paper uh, by hand every month. You know, there's there's no auditing or, or standard methodology for how they're prepared, but it works for us, right? So you may have to say, well, look, that, that may work for you, but that's not going to fly with the buyer. Right. Well, we've also, we had a situation 2021 client we worked on together that we, when we reviewed their financials, we found out the balance sheets didn't balance. Mm. And come to find out there was a large number of expenses that were incorrectly categorized and doubled in some cases. So the financials didn't balance. So they would have actually sold for a smaller price if they would have went to market like that. And then we found the error 
one in the, and the accountant correct the the new accountant corrected it, um, and then they were able to get a higher price. I remember it well, and it, we had the um, it was sixteen months start to finish. Yeah, yeah, and we had the interesting uh, opportunity to have been involved in a first deal before you guys were involved. Mm-hmm. See that one fall apart, get them connected with you guys and the accountants, and then. 16 months later, now they are back to market, got a buyer, and it closed, and they got more money than they would have otherwise. And this that, is a large company. It's a not. Large company. Yeah, so that yeah. was the thing. This is this is a large company. So it's not, I think, $45 million in revenue it was, was, their, was their top line revenue. So was, this is not a mom and pop. This, yeah. was, this was a large company. We had another one that we didn't work with. We, were, we talked to them. We didn't work with them. Um, they were a $100 million company, and they had a construction company. And construction accounting is so complicated, mm-hmm. so complex. When you have uh, cost-based accounting versus project percentage of completion, either way, um, the P and L swung dramatically either way based on how the accounting was done. So if it's not done properly and the financials aren't audited for a large company, um, it can d- dramatically affect your ability to sell and what multiple you'll sell at. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, next question is from our friend Amanda Rupp from Rupp Realty. What's the most important thing you can gather and keep organized when you are preparing to sell your company? Well, I think it's going to go back to financial reports. I think that's probably the biggest thing is making sure your financial house is in order and you've got probably, and you can speak to this, 24 to 36 months of of good data, tax returns, Mm -hmm. probably more than that. But at a minimum, I think two to three years, you need to be prepared to have those uh, viewed by a buyer. Um, The other thing is just simply the things that make the business go. And so this varies from industry to industry. But if you think about like a construction company, for example, um, you know, what do your customer contracts look like? Are they the same every single time? Um, are they consistent? What are your vendor contracts look like? Do you have all of your subs using the same type of uh, contract? So there's predictability and control there. Uh, supplier relationships, are, are those solid? Are those um, vetted? Are, they, are you using the same suppliers consistently? Are you all over the place with different suppliers every week? Those are all things that, you should try to nail down in advance and have documented as, as best you can because those, those are questions that a buyer is going to ask. So I think the best way I can answer is that answer that is if you're looking to sell your business, try to put yourself in the shoes of a buyer. Pretend you're buying your own company. What would you want to know? What would you want to see? That's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Em- employee agreements, contractor agreements, mm-hmm. leases. Oftentimes, we've seen that at that point the seller realizes they don't have a paper copy of their lease and they're afraid to go ask their landlord. F- for it or, yes. you know, a stored copy for their lease. And they're afraid to go ask for a landlord for it because they don't want to, you know, create any concerns. Sure. Um, so just to your point, that's a good way. Of, what what documents makes the business go mm-hmm. and having all those in order and then having someone review them to make sure that there's no surprises. Like we had a, a situation recently where there was a mutual relationship between a vendor and a seller and then who owns the clients mm-hmm. and at what stage of the clients owned and who, do they have right to transfer those clients to another party, right? right? So that the business relationship worked for decades, and then all of a sudden you go to sell, and now will will this convey with the sale? We don't know. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. The um, you you brought up like employment agreements and things like that, so that makes me think about internal SOPs. Um, and so if a buyer were to walk in the door and say show me how your business runs without telling me necessarily, don't just tell me what you do. Show me how it runs. Do you have something you can produce to them? Say, here, here's our SOPs for how we intake clients, how we do the work, how we sell, how we market. You know what I mean? And so can you show them those things? Um, and if the answer is no, then that might be something you want to consider working on. Yeah, we have this document we produced. It was an email series and a blog, and it was uh, the, the difference in profit versus value in a company. 
Um, there's things you can do that add profit. There's also things you can do that add value that don't necessarily add profit. Mm-hmm. And written SOPs, documentation, um, hiring processes, procedures, recruiting process, procedures, uh, promotion, internal training, um, all of that is so valuable that gets overlooked. Even small companies, like like we've noticed, you know, we're my company, we're five people right now. Um, having written and video SOPs, there's so many free tools like Tango and Loom. You can use, yeah. well, Tango's not, or Tango's free, Loom's not, Loom's like 10 bucks a month, but you can record an SOP and it lives there in perpetuity. You can send someone a link or store those links inside of a Word document. Here's yeah. here's the training process. Yep, it's perfect. Yeah, yep. all, all you're doing is increasing value and, and the more you can do that, the more your value goes up. This is especially true for small companies where the owners are, are, are heavily involved in the day-to-day. Right. Yeah, because because the question is, what are you selling? And if it's just, well, I'm, I'm selling my things that I do, well, are you going to stay on with the business forever? No, I mean, you're trying to sell, right? So you need to have something other than just your own time and efforts that you're conveying. Right. I always, one of my sayings is the uh, value of a company is derived by the size of the hole left after the seller exits. I love that. So yeah. if that hole is minimal, the value of the company is large, right? Because there's less impact because impact is risk. So buyers are looking at risk and reward. So how much risk do I have to take on to get what type of reward? And multiples come are direct correlation to risk. Mm. So recurring revenue business are less risky than project-based revenue. Right. The more the seller is involved with the process and the more, and then to the point of what kills deals, the further along in the transaction process that becomes disclosed to the buyer, the more likely they may be to, you know, pull the uh, ejection lever and punch mm-hmm. out of the deal, right? Yep. So surprises are, and that may be something we didn't address really. Surprises are never a good thing in a business transaction. Agreed. Yes, yes, yes. You don't want surprises. Uh, if there are surprises, they should be pleasant surprises. You know, yes. Uh, the company's actually more profitable than they initially thought. That's okay. We see uh, that from time to time too. That's a nice surprise. We don't want uh, unpleasant surprises. Um, another, maybe just another thing, and, and not to be redundant, but with that question specifically, um, you know, thinking about selling, like, I think a good exercise for a seller would be go do nothing for a week. Don't talk to anybody. <laughs> uh, don't talk to anybody. Don't send an email. Don't do anything related to the business. And could the business still survive and function without you? Now, if the ver- it may the, function better, it, it may function mine better. Does. <laughs> <laughs> then that's a good thing. That's a great thing, actually. You know, but if the the mere idea of doing that, like if you would laugh at that, I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, right. I can't do that. Well, then you may have a little bit of work to do before you can get to the point of selling, right? You know, or maybe not selling it for as much as you thought. So that's a, that might be a good exercise to consider. Yeah, because like my and this is another tangent, but my learning experience has been oftentimes that's my preference of how things are done, not how it has to be done. Mm-hmm. And then when the team's allowed to do it without me, they actually then they grow as a team. They grow in their personal individual capability. And uh, they also grow in their confidence, right? Because they know I trust them. They know that um, I'm not micromanaging them and I believe in them, right? And so then that will, then when you as a seller exit the company, now they become the most senior um, knowledge holders in the company and the buyers now look to them for advice and look to them for their their knowledge and how the company operates. That's a win-win for both parties because now the the employees have that, ability to be the the most knowledgeable people in the company sure. and, and kind of walk out their um, passion and, and, and their um, talents inside the company, but also now the buyer has a team of people around him to help make sure the company succeeds. Right, right. Yep, that's another re- recipe for success I've seen. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, the last question Amanda had was, what's most important, your gross revenue or net revenue? I'll go ahead and answer yeah, this. Yeah, you answer say. that one. That's not for um, me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and here's why, right? So 
businesses are often valued upon uh, the net revenue, right? But how close is that gross revenue multiple to the average market? Mm -hmm. And how that plays out is when we do evaluation, we're looking at the net revenue, but also on average, what do these businesses sell for as a percentage of gross revenue? If your business, we may value it at the net revenue number, but if, if the number on the gross revenue is completely different, then your business is abnormal to the market. And how here's how buyers can look at that either way. If your business, let's say you, round numbers, right? Say you have a business that makes a million dollars in gross revenue and $250,000 in net revenue, and that business is going to sell for $500,000. Just making numbers up, right? Um, if, you're, if the subject company has $750,000 in gross revenue, but $250,000 in net revenue, it's performing at a higher margin. Buyer's going to ask why. Mm -hmm. What are you doing different than the rest of the industry? Are you paying your employees less, underpaying them? Because if I'm merging with my existing company, now I have to pay all your people the same as I pay my people. Yes. Or if it's the opposite and we're going to merge companies, now I have to pay all my people the same as I'm paying your people. Right. Um, are you getting a very special deal on your cost of goods, your supplies? And so you're able to sell, you're able to perform business at a um, higher profit margin or lower profit margin. Is there some, some places I can add benefit? Like I, I was doing a exit strategy call with a client yesterday, pulls financials up and he went from like cost of goods was like 30% one year and it was 15% the next year. It's like, Hey, what happened? Instantly what happened? Yeah. Um, because that's the first thing buyers are going to look at when they're analyzing those numbers is okay. Is this repeatable? Right. Um, did the seller not order as much product and sell through inventory? So we artificially inflated the bottom line. Well, if you're not counting inventory on your balance sheet, it's really hard to prove. Right. So how do you walk through that process? So I would say both are important to understand what the, what the, um, what the industry norms are. So you know how aligned with the rest of the industry, your business is. It's not bad being high or low. Mm -hmm. It's just, we need to know why. Yeah. We need to be able to document that and know why you're not in line with the rest of the market. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Financial reports tell a story. Ultimately, what you're trying to do well, is... if they're done right. If they're done right, well, I, I think they tell a story either way. And if they're not done True. right, then they tell a bad story or an inconsistent story at least, right? And so, um, yeah, have, you know, having solid financials that are, that are drafted well and done well by an accountant um, will tell a story. And then, yeah, if there's some sort of variance from the industry, then be prepared to, to answer why. Right. Are you guys just doing it better than everybody else? Or is there some sort of blip on the radar that made you more profitable or less profitable that year? Like you said, is it repeatable? Because a buyer wants to know, can I make that magic work without you in the, in the time that I own it? Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap it up. Sounds good. Yeah, this has been great. And uh, if there's any questions out there, anybody has any um, follow-ups or anything that they would like to reach out to, out to us about, uh, best way to reach us is on our website. We have uh, our email there and phone number. So, Happy to answer any questions. What's your website? Munizilaw.com. M-U-N-I-Z-Z-I law.com. And we'll also put that in the show notes. I can't recommend Justin enough. He's not only my personal attorney. He has also closed countless deals with us and also countless deals with um, other members of the BBF. Um, I, this, I can't say enough positive things about you and your team. So I appreciate it's been a that. very pleasure working with you the last few years, and thank you for coming on today. Thank you for the opportunity. Looking forward to keeping it going. So... For everyone listening, I want to thank you all for following, liking, subscribing, commenting. It, we appreciate your support. Um, 
If you have any questions for next episodes, please leave those in the comments on social media or in uh, YouTube. You also can find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. But I want to say thank you for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.